In the name of the one living, loving, and forgiving God, good morning. Please be seated. It is good to stand before you this morning and preach using a book, a lectionary, that holds us accountable to God and each other in a way that we may not have experienced before, in a way that just might be a little frightening, a lectionary that pulls no punches when it comes to how God's people fail to live up to what God requires and yet provides hope for the possibility of change, for getting it right, as right as humanly possible. For too often the Bible has been weaponized, has been used as a terroristic device, a tool to subjugate in particular women and children. Text of terror, as biblical scholar Phyllis Triple has called them, the sins of scripture, the title of the book by the late Bishop of Newark, John Shelby Spong. These texts of terror are not really dealt with in church, perhaps because they point out the patriarchy and misogyny and violence that still exists in our sacred spaces. And because they are part of our sacred text for some, then God must approve. The word of the Lord, which you had omitted this morning, these texts of terror, if we read them for what they are, point out the failure of systems of power to include the church to prevent violence against those who bear the Imago Dei, the image of God. They point out the failure to provide victims of domestic and sexual violence justice, that they are human beings who are victims of gender terror and that they are in our congregations, in our pews, suffering silently. That we have been raised in all too many cases to not challenge the continuing belief that women and children are the property of men, that they are objects in transactions between males. And so we tend to skip over them, these texts of terror, we do not read them in our lectionary text, and we certainly do not preach them from the pulpit because we may be called to face what is happening before us in the midst of our congregations, in the midst of our families, in the midst of our communities, and we may be challenged to actually do something about it. And yet, in a woman's lectionary for the whole church, the Reverend Wilda Gaffney will not let us off the hook. She calls us to struggle with these texts of terror, these sins of scripture. She makes us squirm. She makes us uncomfortable. She will not let us forget the dehumanization of God's people, that it is sin. And she calls us to action. As we are called to action, this morning's message is this, no bomb in Gilead. They waited too late as June and her husband Luke are trying to escape with their young daughter Hannah to Canada. They realized that they saw the signs, but like too many people, they ignored those signs. 
After all, no one could overthrow the government of the United States, and yet it happened. First, Congress was overthrown, then the White House was taken, and finally the courts. The United States, the majority of what was the United States, is now the Republic of Gilead, a theo-fascist state where women have no rights. Their only function is to reproduce. Abortion is outlawed. Anyone terminating a pregnancy for any reason faces the death penalty, an eye for an eye. In Gilead, women cannot own property. They have no money of their own. And there was a time not too long ago when it was natural for women to read and write, but no longer it is forbidden. A woman who dares to do what was an everyday reality is now subject to losing a finger or a hand. Women no longer work outside the home. Their years of training and education are not important in Gilead. Their only purpose is to be nests for men's seed. But the birth rate is down. Pollution is the cause. Human beings have destroyed God's creation, and infertility is the result. However, if there are no births, no children, all will die. There is a literal belief in the Bible, a fundamentalist belief in this place called Gilead. And the women who are fertile are gathered and placed in the homes of the commanders, the men who run Gilead. They are placed there to breed like cattle, to bear children for the infertile wives. They base their belief in the book of Genesis, the 30th chapter, verses 1 through 3. And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in God's stead? Who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? And she said, Behold, my maid Bilhah, go in unto her, and she will bear upon my knees that I may also have children by her. The year is 2024. And the book, written in 1984, now a Hulu series, is Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, a dystopian story of a world gone mad with God, a male God, a God of wrath at the center. God has been weaponized. Books are banned. LGBTQ people are considered gender traitors and are hanged their bodies left as a terrorist threat for all to see, like the bodies of crucified under Rome's genocidal reign and the lynched black bodies of this country. Left to rot for all to see, to send a message. Step out of line, don't do as we say, and you will be killed. But men rule. They have the books. They have the computers. All of these are denied to women. The men work, they rule, and the women are ruled. They are property, as are the children. The handmaids, those enslaved to bear children for childless wives, bear the men's names. Offred, 
meaning belonging to a man whose name is Fred, of Fred, of Mark, of Stephen. What Mrs. used to denote for some, and still denotes for some, belonging to a man having no identity except through a man. And we might say that Gilead could never happen here, never in these United States, not in this democracy, but in this land of the free, we saw January 2020, and there was a coup, a coup, an attempt to overturn an election, to take over Congress. Books are being banned. Women's rights are being overturned. There is a threat to our LGBTQ siblings. It can be against the law to provide gender-affirming care to our trans youth. The signs are there. Could it be, like June and Luke, we are not paying attention? We've been this way before, where we deny the humanity of many of God's children. And so this morning, I bring you the story of Tamar, the daughter of King David, a man after God's own heart the sister of Absalom, who names his daughter Tamar, and the half-sister of Amnon, who violates her because he can, because she is an object, she is a thing. Her body is not her own. She has no say over her life. This story, however, is about violence upon the female body and the failure of men, and today, some women, to care. This is the story of Tamar. Tamar is a virgin. Virginity is prized in the ancient world. It is still prized today. A symbol that a woman is worthy, that she is pure, that she is clean, untouched, and that she can be bartered for something of value. Her chastity is the object of exchange. Tamar is royalty, and she is to be protected at all costs because while it may seem she would live a life of luxury, she is in fact property of the men in her life. Her virginity is prized and can be used to end wars, to gain empires, to, main, to maintain male power. If she is violated, if she is spoiled, she has no value in this patriarchal world. She is a disgrace to the men in her family. The passage begins with describing her beauty. How a woman looks is important. Women in this country spend a yearly average of over $3,000 on beauty products. The global beauty industry is worth $511 billion. Tamar's beauty attracts the attention of her half-brother Amnon. And while the text the old text said that he fell in love with her. Wilda Gaffney, in her book, Womanish Midrash, a reintroduction to the women of the Torah and the throne, reminds us that falling in love is a post-biblical construct. People didn't fall in love in the Bible. Marriages were contracts. Marriages were arranged. Marriages were not about love. And this alleged falling in love, as the passage continues, is coupled with Amnon's desire to do something to her. 
Tamar is royalty, and males, to include those of her own family, do not have easy access. The property must be protected, even from relatives. So Amnon must plot his way to her, and he enlists the assistance of his cousin, Jonadab, to plan how to trick her to come to him. Now you have another relative conspiring in her violation. Not all violation is physical, as when women conspire with men to control women's bodies, the overturning of Roe. There are still those today who do not believe that women's bodies should be under the control of women. Tamar will be violated in multiple ways by the men in her life. Amnon feigns illness, and David goes to see him. Amnon requests of David that Tamar prepare food for him and bring it to him. David sends the message to Tamar, who goes to Amnon's house and prepares the food. The plan Jonadab has cooked up is working. Tamar is in close proximity to Amnon, but they are not alone. So Amnon orders everyone out with the exception of Tamar. Amnon has her to bring the food to his bedroom. He manipulates her into being alone with him in his bedroom where he asks her to have sex with him, but this is not a request. It is a demand and her cries of no have no power. She is no different than the enslaved black woman whose body was not her own. Tamar realizes the position she is in and says that Amnon could ask their father David to give her to him, to transfer this human property from one man to another. This is not about love. This is not about sex. This is about control. Violence against the female body is about power, and Amnon rapes her. Rape is a weapon of control. Rape dehumanizes. Rape objectifies. The New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. He forced her and he lay with her. However, the Hebrew says he lay her. This is not about being with her. This is about doing something to her. This is not even about lust. This is about naked control, the control and violation of another human being who is not viewed as being human. This was done to her. This is about control, control over the woman's body because it does not belong to her. Depending on how far the ban on abortion goes, women could be forced to continue pregnancies they either do not want or should not experience, like the enslaved black women in the history of this country's past. The overturning of Roe tells women their bodies are not their own. They, like Tamar, have no right to say no. After the assault, after the show of control, after it was over, after Tamar had been humiliated, violated, Amnon puts her out, discards her like trash. She has been used, and he is finished with her. She is spoiled. He has shown her who has power. He calls a servant to show her the door. Her violation is not shared with yet another. Her violation is made public 
Still, Tamar is trying to save face and cites Torah tradition and says that she would stay with him and be his wife. Rape marriage was an ancient custom. Rape a woman and she could automatically become the rapist's wife. Tamar's voice had no power in Amnon's bedchamber. But afterwards, while she used no words, she displayed her agency and let others know what happened to her. She put ashes on her forehead, a sin, a sign of mourning, and she tore the royal clothes and she cried aloud. People saw, people heard, people knew, and people talked. Her brother Absalom sees her and asks, has Amnon, my brother, been with you? It might seem that she finds support from this male relative, but then he colludes, as all too many family members and friends and clergy today collude with the victimization of women. He tells her, be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. In other words, don't air the family's dirty laundry. Keep it to yourself and get over it. Although she would live with her brother Absalom for the rest of her life, Tamar is no longer marriageable. She is no longer valuable. She is damaged goods. She is useless to her father, David, because her rape is a crime against the father and not against her. It is against David, this man after God's own heart. David, who runs to his son's bed when Amnon fades illness, shows no concern at all for his daughter. She is now violated by her father, not unlike all two women and girls who tell of their violation and are either not believed or are blamed for their assault. We know that domestic sexual violence exists, but is more likely to be the subject of television crime shows or talk shows or serialized like The Handmaid's Tale than it is discussed in our churches. One out of every three women is a victim of domestic or sexual violence. And so they sit silently in our congregations and more often than not, our religious institutions participate in the violation by not believing the victims or blaming the victims for their violation or ignoring it altogether or telling women and girls they must forgive. After all, if a woman wants God's forgiveness, she must first forgive. Forgiveness has also been weaponized against women. There is no bomb in Amnon's bedchamber. But as we look to the Reverend Will Gaffney, she gives Tamar the last word. In her sanctified imagination, Reverend Gaffney puts words in Tamar's mouth, and Tamar's voice becomes the balm to overturn patriarchy, to actually destroy Gilead. It is an imprecatory prayer and a prophetic curse. In the words of Will Gaffney, Tamar finds her voice and testifies, 
Cursed be Amnon, who lay with his sister, who ravaged her, the daughter of his father. Let heaven and earth bear witness of what you have done to me. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the name of the living one. Cursed shall be the loins, the seed of your loins, the fruit of your ground, the increase of your cattle, and the issue of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Now, therefore, you are cursed, cursed bitterly, because you ravaged and savaged your sister. Therefore, all women will turn from you, and men will play you false until you pay for your crime against me and against God, with your blood poured onto the earth to satisfy the blood of my virginity. I curse you with a curse, and you are accursed. And yet there is perhaps a balm in Gilead and the women who fight back, who use their voices like Gaphne's Tamar, who use their agency to fight back against their violation and the violation of others. Like the women in Iran who are destroying their hijabs and cutting their hair in protest over the death of Masa Amani by the morality police for allegedly not wearing her hijab properly. Let Tamar's voice be our voice against all who dehumanize and violate God's people. Amen.